Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Joe Francis Penn, and in this episode, I'm talking to Pamela Cook about Australia. We discuss the stereotypes that many people hold about the country and its people, and some of the things that might surprise you. That certainly did surprise me as an English person going for the first time over 20 years ago now. Australians say what they think, whereas Brits might say something and mean something completely different. <laughs> It's also quite similar to the USA, where people live in certain areas and may never have travelled to other parts of the massive country. So I travelled through the outback to Western Australia and the Northern Territory and far north Queensland that many Australians might never visit as they are primarily city dwellers. Perhaps that's changed with the pandemic as we all see more of our own countries with new eyes. And I also talked to Pamela about that. We talk about the diversity from waves of immigration and also the differences in the landscape, as well as the difficulties in rural areas. If you're interested in something more visual, check out Miriam Margulies' series Almost Australian, which is an honest look at the good and bad sides of Australia. And many of the problems are similar to the rural areas of the USA, as covered in the film Nomadland. It's always fascinating to see parallels across cultures. If you'd like more perspectives on Australia, check out episode 26 with Amanda Markham about sacred Australia, the Northern Territory and the Aboriginal people, and episode 20, my personal experience of outback nights and city days in the lucky country. So I hope you enjoy the interview with Pamela Cook today. Cook writes rural and contemporary Australian fiction featuring complex women and tangled family relationships and is a podcaster at Rights for Women. Welcome Pamela. Hi Jo, great to be here on Books and Travel. Yes, I'm excited to have you here. So let's get into it. So when people hear the word Australia, they have certain stereotypes in their mind. So what is true about the stereotypes and what are some of the ones that you particularly enjoy? Yeah, well, I guess the traditional stereotype, Joe, is the Aussie ochre. I guess that comes a little bit from the whole Paul Hogan, you know, throw a shrimp on the barbie type stereotype. And I know a few years ago, or quite a few years ago now, we were travelling in the States and it was around the time that Steve Irwin, I don't know if Steve Irwin was popular in the UK, but he was really big in the States, the wildlife warrior. And he used to say crikey all the time. And I remember standing in an ice cream parlour waiting to order some, you know, ice cream, some takeaway or whatever in LA and people heard our accent and everybody in the shop wanted us to just say crikey, you know, so we sounded like Steve Irwin. And I think he he was one of those guys too that was quite, you know, he, he was part of that whole stereotype, the outback Aussie fighting the wildlife type thing, a bit crocodile Dundee-ish. So I guess there's some truth to that stereotype, like there is in all stereotypes. But the other thing, I guess, maybe for the UK people, you know, there's the Neighbours Association and the sort of 
suburban family life and things like that. And then, of course, at the other end, there's the, you know, we you actually do get asked sometimes when you're travelling overseas, do you have kangaroos in your backyard? Do you have koalas? Things like that. So um, I think there's, you know, I actually live on a property and we sometimes do have kangaroos in our backyard. <laughs> but if you're in, you know, just a normal suburban part of the world and, and lots of Australians live in cities, they tend to cling around the edges. Um, you don't, you rarely see a koala or a kangaroo or anything like that. And of course, then there's the whole venomous animal thing as well. You know, people from overseas are often very scared about coming to Australia. I've met tourists who say, oh, you know, the spiders and the snakes and the sharks are everywhere. And of course, they're here, but, you know, not to that extent where you can't walk out your door without fear of being, you know, bitten or attacked. Although I will say I did have a funnel web in my kitchen a few weeks ago, so <laughs> that wasn't very pleasant. <laughs> oh, well, but then it's interesting because you obviously write about women in Australia and you've talked there about several stereotypes of the sort of white Australian male with the hat on, with the corks and, like you say, the shrimp on the barbie. But what about the women yeah. of Australia? Because I, I think that there are some sort of ideas about that as well. What do you think? Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because when I was thinking about this question earlier today, it was more that male uh, stereotype that came to mind for me, you know, that image of, of the outback Aussie. I guess in terms of women, there is also that idea of the women on the land, and, and I think there's a lot of truth in that as well. There is a lot of, There are a lot of women who work on the land. You probably don't hear as much about them as you, you tend to do the men, but there's a lot of Aussie women farmers out there as well. But I think a lot of the the impression that people have if they haven't been to Australia is of this sort of outback place where, of course, many, many thousands, millions of Australians live in the cities and some people have never been to the outback or never even experienced it. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting question about the women in terms of stereotype. What do you think? What do you think of when you think of like an Australian, you know, woman stereotype, I guess? Well, I was thinking of Nicole Kidman in the film Australia, which, again, still is that outback. But I think it's the independence. I remember when I first came to Australia in uh, the year 2000, mm. I arrived in Perth and went up the West Coast, up to Darwin, through, the again, the outback. But I met a lot of, obviously, I met a lot of Australian women and, and made friends. And I, I was there. Yeah, well, I lived in Australia five years in the end. But I, I think that Australian women are independent and and strong you know people and so that is mm. I don't even think it's a it's not it's obviously not a bad stereotype it is definitely a personality of the country I think and I think Australian women will often speak their mind <laughs> much more than uh, British women yeah. might for example <laughs> I, I remember going wow okay <laughs> I, I, I think you're just saying what you think, whereas British people, for example, we might say one thing, but we mean something completely different, whereas I feel that's less so in Australia. Yeah, I don't think we're as willing or not willing, but I don't think we necessarily always stick to the niceties. You know, like you say, I think Australian women do tend to be quite outspoken. A lot of Australian women, it's a generalisation, of course, but, you know, and definitely speak their mind. And yeah, I think sort of polite rules aren't necessarily always adhered to you know <laughs> yeah exactly so and what do you think might surprise people about Australia and its people in a positive way 
Yeah, well, I think a big thing, linking back to that idea of the outback and that that sort of image that Australia has, and I guess that image too was promoted, has been promoted um, by our tourism, you know, authorities and things because there is a, a fantastic um, outback to see in Australia and all that sort of thing. But I think what a lot of people overseas probably wouldn't realise maybe about Australia is that it's actually a really multicultural place. We have people here from all over the world and also, of course, our Indigenous culture, our First Nations people's culture, which is thankfully being recognised a lot more now and being um, promoted and seen as something that's valuable um, finally, which it's taken a long time for that to happen. But Certainly in terms of the different cultures and and waves of migration that has happened, we've got people from all over Europe, from the UK, of course, but also uh, Asia and, you know, the range of restaurants and different types of foods and things that you can get in Australia, even often in really small country towns. You can go to a a little town and find a fantastic Thai restaurant or, um, but certainly there's many places in big cities like Sydney where you just have the biggest range of restaurants and cafes and things available. And, of course, all that flows into things like art galleries and literature and all those different, you know, aspects of culture that, you know, it makes it just a really vibrant, lively, diverse sort of place to be. You can go to suburbs where you can walk down the street and everything's like from the Vietnamese sort of culture or, you know, like there's areas where, you know, Chinatown, of course, every city has a Chinatown, but there's, there is loads of different cultures. So with that comes things like festivals associated with different um, cultural groups and there's religious festivals. Like I live um, just south of Sydney and there's a fantastic Hindu temple just not far from where we live. So I think that might may surprise some people who wouldn't have that impression of Australia looking at it from afar. And, and also I think, of course, the natural environment it might not be a surprise, but the variety of different things that you can see in Australia. So we have a lot of beautiful coastal areas, of course, and we do have then the the red interior, the out, real outback around Uluru and Kakadu and all those sorts of wonderful places. But then in between that, you know, there's fantastic national parks, there's, you know, wineries, there's the high country down in the snowy mountains, there's the tropical areas up in Queensland. So it's really diverse in terms of landscape and there's pretty much any type of landscape that you can think of within the boundaries, I guess, of Australia. So there's always something to do if you love the outdoors. And as I mentioned, the Indigenous culture that is now, it will, I think the latest dating, they're saying, goes back something like, you know, over 60,000 years or possibly more. And there are places where you can go and see rock paintings and cultural artefacts and things from that those cultures and those peoples that, you know, are definitely a really important part of our overall culture. We don't have the old buildings perhaps like in the UK and Europe, but uh, we certainly have a very ancient culture uh, when you take into account those Indigenous peoples. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's a very, very big country. And I think it can be uh, almost hard to realise that when you're booking uh, a trip, because you think, oh, there's only a couple of really massive cities like Sydney and Melbourne and then Perth and um, Brisbane. But in countries the size of Australia, there are many more places that you would go in terms of cities. But yeah, it's a very big country. And it's funny you mentioned Asia, Asian uh, cuisine, for example, because in the UK, when we say 
Asia, we mostly mean India. So when I arrived in Australia and people would mm. refer to Asian people, in my mind, they were referring to Indian people. But actually in Australia, Asian generally refers to more uh, Chinese, Vietnamese, Japanese, that different side of Asia. So I think that's really interesting too, because again, and I hadn't, I'd never eaten the amount of Asian food before I lived in Australia, because we have quite different, obviously we have it here in the UK. <laughs> but at, at the time in the year 2000, when I came, we didn't even have sushi on, you know, available in our on the high street for example whereas I came to Australia and it was something I think I ate sushi for the first time in Australia so yeah it's interesting how the Asian cultures are so embedded which is interesting but I wanted to to say so you several of your books are set in rural Australia and you mentioned that and it, it can be a harsh life so what are some of the attractions of those rural areas in particular and, and also some of the dangers? Yeah, that, that's true, Joe. In many ways, there are, I guess, some difficulties with living in rural areas. And of course, it depends what type of rural area you're in. Like a lot of uh, farmland, so the areas that I first set my original books around uh, is a few hours south from here, from where I live. And it's it's more coastal. It's got beautiful rolling green paddocks. There's cows and horses. You're not far from the beach. There's national parks, that sort of thing. So it's not too taxing if you're living there. <laughs> But of course, living on the land, you know, is has become increasingly difficult, I think, over the last decade. Well, I mean, Australia has always experienced drought, but the last probably 10 or 15 years, the drought seasons have become longer and harsher. And it's not quite as bad now, of course, as it was a few years ago. But um, so I wrote a book, my fourth book, The Crossroads, was, was set in outback Queensland. And I'd never actually been to the outback at that point. And I went there to research it. And it was right in the middle of the drought. So it really opened my eyes to the difficulties that farmers faced. There were these massive, massive properties that you could drive for hours and you would still be on the same property, these very big land holdings in central Queensland. Um, red dirt, you know, the whole outback thing. But the time that I was there, which was around 2015, I think the drought was quite at its peak and farmers had had to sell off many of their animals. The animals that were there, a lot of them were were really um, well, not starving, but they were very thin because the farmers were really trying to keep them alive by hand feeding them. There was literally no grass at all. Water was scarce, you know, so all those sorts of things with people who are making a living from farming, trying to to keep their animals alive and to keep roofs over their head. And then, of course, there were all the associated mental health issues around that. If you can't keep your business running, if you're a farmer and, and you can't feed your family, there were a lot of mental health issues and still are, of course, for people living on the land. Those properties, many of those properties, because of the drought, also were being overrun by kangaroos. You know, they were there in their thousands, but eating any escherichs of grass that were left. So in those sorts of places when the drought was at its peak, there were some really harsh realities. And then, of course, the effects that all that has on the local town too, people moving away when <clears throat> they can't make a living there. So businesses close down and there's um, not enough people to staff schools and hospitals and things like that. So it can be really quite harsh. But if you talk to people who've lived on the land for generations, they're just such hardy, strong people. And... For many of them, they've seen this happen before or in their families. They've been through many droughts and they know that it will 
become good again, although with global warming and everything, of course, the things are a little bit different. So there can be sort of those harsh realities, I think, for people living on those really big land holdings. And then, of course, to a lesser extent, I guess, for other farmers. And then, then you've got the whole small town thing where you do have the advantage of knowing everyone in the community and that can be really great and it can be really supportive. But then you've got that thing where everybody knows your business too. You know, you, you can't really get away with doing anything and not being found out. So, yeah, I guess like everything, every type of lifestyle, there's pluses and minuses with living in, you know, in the country and in, on rural areas, in rural areas. Yeah, and when I I travelled, uh, spent a lot more time travelling through Australia, and I mean, some of the most memorable occasions were being out in the outback and out in the desert and out in these very difficult kind of raw situations and seeing how dangerous it would be. And it is, and there's actually Jane Harper's book, The Dry, it, it goes into that drought situation as well, which uh-huh. which I wanted to mention there. But it's interesting. So you said you hadn't actually been out to the outback until you'd uh, researched that book. And it, it can be really hard to see your own country with the eyes of an outsider. Uh, but what are some of the other places that have inspired your fiction in particular, where you've had to take that out outside of you? Yeah, well, I didn't grow up in a rural area. I mean, I, I've always loved travelling to country areas. And as a child, my family used to travel down the south coast and that place has a really special place in my heart. So we ended up, my husband and I, buying a holiday house there. And that's where I did set some of those earlier books. But it's interesting when you do go to somewhere like that and you're researching and you, you do see it as an outsider. And I guess you, you watch the way people relate with each other. And, and especially when you come from a, a more urban background, you can really see the difference in, particularly in community relationships, I think. That's something that really struck me as an outsider going into communities with the sort of close-knit feeling. You've got the CWA Hall, the Country Women's Association, usually in every town, and they'll have little market days or scone days or things like that. I mean, some of those traditions, I think, are dying out now, but they definitely still still exist. So it it has been interesting coming from more of an urban background and, and seeing some of those differences. And I wrote a book a few years ago, which was set more out west, not out back, west but probably about say five hours from Sydney so over the Blue Mountains and the other one of the things that I really noticed is the the isolation and as you mentioned Joe the long distances that people have to travel so for example if you live five or eight hours away from Sydney you're in a fairly small town sometimes the medical facilities aren't great it it might be okay for just ordinary day-to-day health things but if you have some sort of medical emergency getting to a big enough hospital can be difficult. You might have to be airlifted if there's a real emergency or certainly the travel to get to somewhere like that can be quite extensive. And my brother used to live in a place uh, called Broken Hill, which was, uh, I think it's actually probably about 10 hours west of Sydney or even more. And his kids all played various school sports, netball and things. And the distances they used to travel to actually compete in uh, different sports was amazing you know like they'd travel for hours and hours just to play a game of netball or something so there's a lot of things like that that you do notice when you go to country places if you haven't been brought up there and they're all the things that I love to tap into when I'm writing about those places too as well as the beautiful scenery and and all the the nicer sides of it as well. 
It's funny you reminded me there. I remember uh, being, I think I was just somewhere in, in Queensland and someone was like, oh, come to this party. And I'm like, oh, okay. And they're like, yeah, we have to drive 12 hours. It's not far. <laughs> and I was like, oh, right. I remember it was uh, like the Bachelor and Spinster's Ball or something in some in some town in the outback where I th- actually think there was a reality oh, TV show yeah. they did on that eventually, marrying the Bachelor uh, in the outback type of thing. And and I remember it just going, yeah, I'm, I don't think I want to drive that far to just go to a party. But it was like that was completely normal to drive for hours and hours just to go do something. <laughs> Yeah, and well, certainly is if you live in any sort of country location, I guess if you want to do anything social, you have to be willing to travel. And I remember going to one of those BNS balls actually in Victoria many years ago, and it was huge. There were so many people there, and people came from, you know, as you say, from miles and miles from from all around in every direction, and it was a good time was had by all. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah but back in the days the when um... can be quite um, a challenge. Yes, back in the days when uh, people met with without apps, there weren't well, wasn't the sort of internet dating that, that there is nowadays. But <laughs> back in the day when I was backpacking around Australia, but let's get into the more cultural side in terms of the uh, more urban setting. So you live in Sydney, and of course, when people say Sydney, everyone knows the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge because they're on the TV all the time and in movies and stuff. Uh, but what are some of the other places that you love? Um, recommend in in Sydney in particular? Yeah, well, I live about uh, 50 minutes by train from the centre of Sydney. I moved further south out of Sydney itself a few years ago. But I do, you mentioned the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge, Joe, and I just, every time I do go into the city, which isn't really that often, considering how close I am to it, um, the harbour is absolutely amazing. So that's definitely a a jewel in the crown sort of thing. It's beautiful on a a lovely sunny day to hop off the train and just walk around the harbour. But there are loads of um, places that have sprung up, I guess, as as people have moved closer in to live towards the city. Uh, The centre of Sydney itself, some people are living now in the centre of Sydney, um, but they tend to live lightly out but there's some suburbs that have been gentrified if you like so like Surrey Hills, Paddington certainly, Marrickville you know I mentioned before the Vietnamese restaurant so there's lots of places Newtown is a fabulous place to go for great cafes and quirky shops and just some interesting people watching great bookstores so there's lots of nice little suburbs not very far from Sydney and then of course if you travel probably only 15 minutes out of Sydney out of the city centre, you can be at, you know, Bondi and Coogee and there's some beautiful coastal walk. They've actually created a coastal walk and I can't tell you exactly how far it runs, but they've linked up a lot of the coastal walks that go along those beaches. Coogee, you've obviously got to get the ferry across to Manly, but there's walks that go all up and down the coast now. And even down where I live in the Illawarra, there's a great walk and, and a cycling track. So there's lots of really great things like that that you can do. And of course, the Blue Mountains isn't very far away. It's only a couple of hours out of Sydney. And that's a really lovely place with beautiful little pea and scones type places. And it does snow there. We don't get the snow that you guys get in the UK, but I was up in the Blue Mountains last year on a weekend away and and we got some snow, which was very exciting. And then, of course, we do have the high country, the snowy mountains, which, again, you know, doesn't get a huge amount of snow, but enough that you can actually go down and, and do some skiing. So that's always nice. And we have some great wineries not very far out of Sydney as well. There's the Hunter Valley wineries, which are probably a couple of hours northwest. And then out west around Mudgee and Orange, there's some really lovely 
wineries and foodie type options which have sprung up over the last few years so yeah there's there's plenty to do yeah and um certainly those walks there I remember the the walk uh, to Manly along the coast there and I I also think it's important because a lot of people listening might be American and think that you need to drive everywhere so you definitely need to drive every a lot of places in Australia but if you're staying in downtown Sydney there are ferries trains buses you can walk places so I certainly never had a car when doing a, a a trip just within Sydney or say Melbourne for example there's plenty of public transport isn't there I think that's really important you, you don't want to be driving everywhere no and in fact Joe over the last few years they've they've they're trying to deter people from taking cars into the city itself so they have established a really good light rail system so I guess like a tram like the trams in Melbourne but you can get a tram now or a light rail all the way out to Bondi and you can very easily travel be in Sydney without having to to get a car and and the, the suburban train system is pretty good and the country trains are great. So you can go south, north, west on the trains and, and the bus system is pretty good. So, yeah, you definitely don't need to have your own transport or, or to go to the extent of hiring a car. There, there are plenty of options with public transport for sure. Mm. Yeah, I lived in Sydney for, I think, four four or five months during the Olympics in uh, 2000. And yeah, I never had a car and I, I got around fine even back then. So uh, I remember getting the train to the Blue Mountains and doing some hiking. And yeah, I, I had a great time. It was it was definitely a memorable occasion. And uh, I even I saw the beach volleyball on Bondi. It was a great time that that Olympics. It was pretty wild back then, yeah. I was watching something because they're talking now about Brisbane getting the Olympics in, I think it's 2032, and it's sort of all quite low-key, but I remember when the announcement was made that Sydney was going to host the Olympics and it was just party central from the minute that it was announced and then certainly while the Olympics were on, it was just such a great vibe here. Like it's hard to believe that that was like 20 over 20 years ago but yeah it's it was a great time and and things have certainly changed a bit now I think but there's still of course plenty to do yeah absolutely so what's I mean we're recording this it's still uh it is sort of March 2021 but the pandemic still goes on and Australia closed its borders in the pandemic and making it pretty almost impossible to enter or leave the country as in you actually as far as I understand it you have to get permission from the government if you want to leave and they have made it very difficult to um come in so as someone who's interested in travel has has it made you think about travel in a different way and has it changed your mindset around local travel for example yeah it, it de- definitely has jo. I mean we um we would have been had there been no COVID we would have been skiing in Canada last month for instance that was our planned trip we'd been planning that for a couple of years we, we'd like to go overseas skiing every couple of years but of course that went out the window and We've been very lucky. I mean, the restrictions were quite severe, but I think it's it worked in our favour in that the numbers have been very low, comparably, you know, to other places in the world. So everyone's handled it quite well, I think. I have had friends who have had to come in from overseas for family reasons and things like that, friends who are living in the Middle East, for instance, and having to come in and then spend two weeks in quarantine, of course, when they got here. I had the time here, had another two weeks in quarantine when they went back. So all that sort of thing was going on. Borders have been closed between states. They've, they're now opening up, but even travel interstate wasn't possible. And, of course, for 
some of the, the time during COVID, you couldn't even, you know, leave home. So it certainly does make you think about other travel options. And, you know, like you having lived in Australia, Joe, and travelling the way that you did when you were here, you've probably seen more of Australia than I have. Like I, I have seen a fair bit of it, but I haven't, for instance, been to Uluru or um, really fun North Queensland, things like that, although I have been to a couple of the islands. But, yeah, it certainly does make you think about what's closer to home. We've done a couple of sort of short trips since things have eased in terms of restrictions just up north and, and down south a little bit. But the local tourism industry is actually starting to really boom because people who would normally be travelling overseas, particularly over that Christmas, you know, January period when we have that long holiday time, a lot of those places that not too far out of Sydney actually were booming, which was really good for them because this time last year, of course, they were just getting over quite devastating bushfires. So, you know, it has been good in a way for local tourism and it definitely does make you think about where you can go that's um, not involving getting on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, although again in Australia you often do have to get on a plane to travel interstate, as you say. It's like, what is it, eight hours flight to Perth, I think, from Sydney. Is that right? I think it's down to five now. It's about five or six. Yeah, yeah still a, it's still a long way. But do, do you think that, um, I mean, I certainly feel like I've taken travel for granted uh, before this. I mean, obviously, uh, being aware of the ecological impacts, but still wanting to travel responsibly. And now I feel even more that I value it more than I did before. And I'm not going to go, oh, you know, be blase about, oh, yeah, I'll get there someday. I feel like I'm definitely going to go places. So are there things that you feel you might have taken for granted and, and that you're going to go do once things change again? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've always been big travellers. You know, we travelled, I lived over in London and, and the UK for a couple of years when I was younger. And then I think my husband and I both had the travel bug, you know, from that time. And we travelled quite extensively with our children as they were growing up. And even as they're um, into adulthood, we've been away with them. But it does make you really think about the fact that we have taken that for granted, that we can, we've been able to jump on flights to go to the other side of the world relatively cheaply, really, when you think about some of the special airline, you know, the fares and things that that you could get. So, yeah, it does really make you think about it and think, of, you know, maybe we do have limited travel options in the future. I'll be thinking very carefully about where I do want to go and, and some of the places that I haven't been before, maybe prioritising there in case something like this does happen again and we can't travel for whatever reason. Absolutely. It is an interesting time and really thinking about those things. So uh, we're almost out of time. So this is the books and travel show. So apart from your own books, what are a few books that you would recommend about or set in Australia? This was a great question, Joe. You really got me thinking. I've always loved the books of Tim Winton. He writes beautiful Australian settings. There's lots of those around by Tim Winton. You mentioned The Dry, which is uh, a great crime novel. Jane Harper, she's got a few other books out as well that are set in generally rural Australia. Uh, Candace Fox has some great crime books set in a lot of different locations. I think her Redemption Point series, um, not sure if that one's set up in Queensland, but some of her books are set up in, in northern Queensland. If you're after rural romance, that's a really big thing in Australia and we have lots of great rural romance writers who set their books in sort of small-town Australia, Penelope Janu, Carly Lane, there's actually a great website called Australian Fiction 
I think it's australianfictionauthors.com. So, yeah, that's a really great place to go and find some of those books where you, you might have a, a really lovely rural setting and then you've got things going on between people in the community. All sorts of different books can be found there. So there's lots of great Australian fiction out and, and coming out all the time. You know, for the podcast, I keep getting sent books from publishers and I just can't keep up with the reading. It's just amazing. <laughs> yes, and we should say your podcast at Writes for Women, uh, as you say, you you talk to other writers. And it's funny because you, you mentioned Australian romance. And of course, uh, talking of stereotypes, the Thornbirds has to be the stereotypical yeah. Australian romance epic. And uh, I remember watching that miniseries in my, I guess, in my early teens, I, I think, at the, at the time. And I think that's another... It has a lot of truth in it, I think, around the rural Australia. And But do, do, do you think that Australian authors, romance authors in particular, feel like a hangover from the Thornbirds? Does it still rear up? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if you hear about the Thornbirds every now and then. But no, I think it's, I think it's changed a fair bit from, from the Thornbirds. But I think that's obviously part of the legacy, that tradition of Australian rural fiction writing but I think there's there's a very varied whole range now of, of different types of stories set in the country and some of the romances are really full-on romances others are like romantic suspense that's quite a popular genre to have sitting here and a couple of other books that I'll mention Joe, a fabulous book called The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart for anybody that um, really wants to read books with a fantastic Australian setting um, that's set partly on a, a wildflower plant and um <clears throat> also has some Indigenous uh, storyline happening in it. And another one, All Our Shimmering Skies, which is a recent one, set up in Darwin just and around Darwin after World War II by Trent Dalton. So they're two re- recent books that are great for Australian setting and Australian story. Fantastic. So where can people find you and your books and everything you do online? Oh, thanks, Joe. So you can find me at pamelacook.com.au. I'm on Instagram at Pamela Cook Writes and Twitter, Pamela Cook AU. And my podcast is rightsforwomen.com. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Pamela. That was great. Thanks, Joe. It's been lovely chatting. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.